Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today to talk about tax-efficient investing is Whitney Elkins-Hutton. Whitney is the Director of Investor Education at PassiveInvesting.com, and she's the founder of AshWealth.com as well. Whitney, thanks for joining me. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Whitney, I'm excited for this episode. It's a little bit of a, of a back to basics or zooming out and, and talking about something that I feel like not a lot of investors understand. I get the sense in conversations, people will, will say to me, you know, real estate can be a great tax efficient investment option, but they don't really understand why. They just kind of say it. So I want to dive in today and, and help folks understand why. And by the way, I say that with no judgment. I do this like Whitney, I'll confess to you. It describes me with with red wine. I pretend like I understand it, um, but I don't really. I'm just faking it. I, I have no idea what what's good and what has hints of elderberry or mint or whatever it's supposed to be. But uh, anyways, that's neither here nor there. Um, but the, the goal today is to help people kind of understand something that's um, a really key component of tax efficient investing, and that's real estate and why real estate can be so tax efficient. So, Whitney. Uh, give us the executive summary, the elevator pitch. Why Why does real estate investments in real estate, specifically passive investments in real estate, why does that have the potential to be a very tax-efficient investment option? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for having me on the show. I am so excited to you know share this concept with everybody. And you know, like you, Michael, my knowledge of red wine is from the movie Sideways. So I'm a little bit dating myself, which is just don't drink Merlot, right? Like <laughs> there are other wines out there other than Merlot. Um, but anyways, when we get into tax investing, or excuse me, tax benefits of real estate investing, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a CPA. I want to put that out there first and foremost. I'm somebody who's been in the real estate arena since 2002. I mean, I might be the director of investor um, education now at PassiveInvesting.com. I've been in private equity for several years as the director of investor relations as well. But that's not where I started. I started off, like many of the people here, you know, living, flipping and house hacking and, and, you know, working a W-2 job, you know, trying to find ways to scale my income that didn't require additional time involvement for me or limited time involvement create value. And then just, you know, how do we get ahead for retirement? You know, how can we unlock those golden handcuffs uh, and, and live a larger life? And, you know, that doesn't mean you have to go buy the island or the jet or anything like that, but just, you know, the life that we were, you know, put on this earth to live. Now, so um, it was several years into my real estate investing journey, quite frankly, you know, I was living, flipping and house hacking, um, doing really well at building up buckets of equity, but I was, also paying the tax man quite a bit of money. Yeah. And then um, eventually, uh, you know, one of my friends was, well, why don't you keep one of those flips and turn it into rental? Because, you know, there's all these tax benefits with having, you know, you know, buy and hold rentals. And I'm like, oh, well, that's genius because that stabilizes and produces income for me. Um, but it was even after a year or two of holding those rentals that, you know, I stumbled across the book by Tom Wheelwright called Tax Free Wealth. And I quite, when I read that book, I was like, I don't really get this. So mm -hmm. I, like anybody, I 
I'm very much into like research. I'm just like, okay, I got to go back to basics. How do I take this monstrosity of a book and boil it down to fundamental principles? And then let me dig into those principles. And the five principles that I pulled from those book um, was number one, take advantage of deductions. Now, obviously real estate helps people build up deductions. Okay. To, you know, you know, because if you're taking deductions, um, in your business, uh, then you can take that. It, it goes one for one against you, the income that you're bringing in. Now, some people are like, oh, if I'm taking a wealth of deductions, my net income drops. And I'm like, yes, and, but you also don't have to pay tax on that money either. Um, so one, how can you maximize deductions? Um, number two, how can you use entities um, you know, to pass through business expenses? This is why a lot of people set up, you know, with their, their buy, uh, excuse me, fix and flip real estate S corporations, because there's a qualified business income pass through. I think it's 20% off the top that you don't have to pay taxes on. Um, and also in the long-term rental side, this is why people, you know, put a lot of their, uh, you know, their assets into an LLC to get the tax pass through benefits there as well. Now, again, I'm not an accountant, so you guys partner with your CPAs on this if you're holding real estate. Um, how can you take it? But it may, I guess I should pause there. Maybe you have a business, a side business. Maybe you are a solopreneur um, or have a side hustle that's an LLC. These deductions and tax benefits um, are also uh, available for you. And then, you know, number three is how can you take advantage of tax brackets? And, you know, maybe you have kids, maybe you have dependents living at home, maybe you're, you're, uh, you have elderly parents, um, maybe you have a side business that you have additional income through. Can you hire your kids into that business? Can you uh, pay your parents to help you out in some form or fashion? Because, and the reason why you might want to consider this is that they have lower tax brackets. So for my 11-year-old, Quite frankly, she can do a lot of the bookkeeping. She can do social media way better than I can for all of my uh, business uh, ventures. And I can pay her for it. And she has, you know, a, I think it's like 12500 that I can pay her for in a year. And it, she doesn't pay any taxes on it. Now, yeah. what does she do with the money? Now she can pay some of her own bills, you know, um, you know, you know, clothing expenses, stuff like that, you know, things, you know, trips that she wants to go on, things she wants to do with her friends, but she can also save money in a Roth IRA yep. as well and continue to supercharge that. Um, yeah. Then, you Let's, know, how can you... Let me, let me pause you there, Whitney. I want to dive into that a little bit because this is, this is super important. And I just want to make sure people understand this concept of the tax brackets. And it's, I mean, it's essentially tax arbitrage and the way that it, the way that it works at kind of a, a technical level is there's a standard deduction that, that everyone can take. So if your income is less than that standard deduction, and you mentioned it's about 12,500 for 2023, you said you pay $0 in taxes. So if you're able to pay, I think you said you've got an 11 year old, if you can justify paying him or her, say $11,000 in income, then you kind of shift that income from you, who's in a much higher tax bracket, I assume, to an 11 year old who's effectively in a 0% tax bracket. So you're taking, in this case, let's say it's $10,000 in income, moving it, let's say you're moving it from a 35% tax bracket down to a 0% tax bracket. Um, that's free money right there. Uh, that's arbitrage. And if you've got uh, if you've got a couple of kids, you can do it a couple of times and you can start saving money. The other thing you mentioned, Whitney, that's super important is the the child IRA, starting an IRA for your, uh, for your 11-year-old. 
It's pretty easy to do in the sense that it's easy to open up an IRA at, at Vanguard or wherever for your child. The hard part is getting that kid earned income. So what you just talked about, paying your kid, kind of checks a couple of boxes. It's tax arbitrage. The child also now has earned income, so they are able to contribute to their to their Roth IRA. Uh, they won't touch that for 50 years. And just, the, you know, Albert Einstein said they one of the world is, is compounding returns. They're going to have a nice a nice chunk of change in that Roth IRA by the time it comes to comes to retirement. Um, we did a, I did a great episode with Chris Perosa on the the Roth IRA. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but anyways, Whitney, sorry to interrupt you there, but I just want to make sure people understand that idea of paying your kids. Powerful on a couple of different ways, reducing taxes today as well as just enabling them to do that that Roth. Um, starting a Roth for your kids is one of the smartest moves you can make. And, you know, thank you for deep diving on that, because it, uh, it, it's something that people can't wrap their heads around. They think they're paying yeah. their kids and they're like, well, well OK, I'm giving them eleven thousand, twelve thousand dollars. Like, what are they going to do with it now? Well, they get to save for their college. Yeah. Um, they can you know, put it in a retirement account or, you know, um, you know, they're going to have similar expenses. Right. You know, they can put five thousand dollars towards a Roth. There's still a net there. Like, you know, so my daughter needed a new mountain bike. Guess what? She yep. paid for it. I like that was an expense that was going to come out of our pocket anyways. And so yeah. we were a great point. Also a little it. harder to quantify. It's a great way to teach kids about money, financial literacy at a young age. Um, you know, they'll, they'll love checking their, uh, the balance of their Roth IRA um, and being able to have those conversations with them. They're not going to grasp every nuance of it, but uh, instilling that from an early age, then a little bit harder to quantify, but maybe the most valuable benefit of, of all of those that we just mentioned. Well, and there's also, you can supercharge that too. Like if you open up a solo 401k, now we're getting in the weeds because then you may be able to like, you know, sidestep some of, you know, only putting $5,000 a year and maybe stuff in a little bit more like $20,000 a year. But, you know, I want to keep this high level for everybody yeah. because these are things that are attainable, whether you own real estate or not. Um, I think, you know, but you do need to have some sort of business or, or methodology. You can't just give your kids $11,000 and take it off on your taxes. Right. You have to have they have to have a there has to be a reason for earning that income, you know, in your business, which means they actually have to have a job description. You know, you're going to want to make sure that you write that with your accountant and it can be your child. It can be also other dependents. So if you have elderly parents and that are living with you, it can you can take advantage of their tax bracket as well. You know, maybe you're taking on some of their housing expenses or something like that. You know, the same concept works with them. Um, so that's four. Number five was then, and this is where most Americans were conditioned to start, which is deferring money. Okay. And so we're conditioned to start here, you know, go to school, get a good job, start saving for retirement, stuff as much money as you can into your, you know, traditional IRA account. Well, it's really that last, oh, and actually, I apologize. I missed one step before deferring even that income. What can you can eliminate through tax credits? Um, mm. you know, uh, if you're have a, a business owner, research and development tax credit, energy tax credits, you know, um, there's, you know, partner with your CPA and see what you're eligible for. And so those are four things you can do. I'll just recap them really fast. Deductions, business path through, pass through using entities, tax brackets, arbitraging tax brackets, taking advantage of tax credits. And then we get down to the last step, which is the part that we're most conditioned for, which is Start stuffing money into your IRA, right? 
Um, and then even here, you want to be very cognizant of where you're, which parts of your IRA you're going to tap out first. For me, I look at maxing out my health savings account first. If I'm in a health plan that allows me to have an HSA, I always max that out first. Then I max out my Roth position. And then if I have funds left over, then I will max out my traditional IRA. Now you can throw some gas on the fire here and work with your accountant and maybe a self-directed provider. If you own a business or have rental real estate of opening up a, what we call a solo 401k. Um, but even just for you know, an everyday person who has no real estate, you need know, to think about maximizing the HSA first, because we're all going to, as we age, have health expenses. Okay. That yep. goes in tax-free, grows tax-free, comes out tax-free for health expenses. Whatever's not being used, I think it's age 65, converts into a Roth. And so, um, you know, it, you know, there, it, there's no reason not to do it in my book. And then, you know, your Roth position, again, you it, you pay taxes on it before you put it in there. It grows tax-free, comes out tax-free. So, and then you've got your traditional IRA. The reason why I don't stop that much money into my traditional IRA is because, you know, for most people, if they're going to retire, they want to retire comfortably, which means they're going to have more than 500000 or a million dollars in their IRA account. And when they start taking out that money, it's going to be above and beyond their required minimum distribution or their their standard deduction, uh, which could lead to double taxation of Social Security. Now, yep. I know there's a lot of, you know, is Social Security going to be around whenever you and I retire? Who knows? But, you know, th those are all the things that are on the table. And so make sure you work with an account to really understand what are the different ways you can take advantage of that HSA and Roth account and lower your traditional tax position. And those are just things you can do without real estate or not. But if you hold real estate, it allows you to do steps one through four easier. And the reason is because you can really maximize step one, the deductions phase. Because one of the biggest deductions you can get in real estate is depreciation. Okay. Yeah. And that great. That's a great summary, um, Whitney. I'll put a summary of these in, in the show notes. Um, so we we dove deep on the tax brackets. I want to go back and kind of dive a little bit deeper into a couple of these. Let's start with depreciation. Um, so you know, you, you are uh you're the director of investor education. So no person more qualified to to do a little high-level education here. Um, explain mm -hmm. why depreciation is so powerful and how smart investors can can maximize it and, and take advantage of it. Yeah. So, you know, as Tom Wheelwright puts it in this book, you know, Tax-Free Wealth, and a lot of other people on the internet have as well, the tax code is a treasure map, right? The first hmm. 10 pages tell you how to pay your taxes, and the other 400, 500 actually tell you how you can avoid paying taxes and reduce your tax bill. And so as real estate investors, the government does not want to get into buying, uh, you know, providing housing for everybody, nor do they want to provide like, you know, uh, you know, commercial real estate for businesses and stuff like that. They want us, the you know, consumer, as well as the investor to solve these problems. Now, if I bought a building and, um, you know, over time, the components of that building are going to break down. I'm going to need to, there's going to be maintenance and upkeep. I'm going to need to keep them in repair. The government was like, I don't want to do this. You do this. You're the investor. And I'm going to incentivize you by doing this, by allowing you to take that building, let's say a single family rental house, and break down that 
that building over 27 and a half years. Now, my house that I live in was built in 1961. So boy, it can live, totally stand longer than 27 and a half years. But, you know, certain parts of that house are going to need to be replaced sooner, like, you know, carpet, cabinetry, all that sort of stuff versus um, the flooring um, or the foundation or the electrical or the roof. Now, when the IRS has this whole scale of how and when things, quote unquote, break down, but they allow you to take a paper loss. So this, when you take this paper loss, it's not a true loss, but you take this paper loss called depreciation, it's used to offset the income that you've brought in on that property. Now, this does not count for your primary residence. Okay, this counts for commercial and uh, multifamily real estate and residential real estate. There's a different time schedule for other types of commercial real estate, like um, self-storage, RV parks, stuff like that. But um, in this particular example, that depreciation, you know, we can take a certain amount over 27 and a half years in residential real estate. Now, this is another part accounting methodology that the IRS allows is I can go in and I can hire an engineer and that engineer can go in and break down all the components of the building and anything that's going to depreciate in 20 years or less, according to the IRS time schedule, I can now accelerate to the first five years of the project. This is called accelerated depreciation. So say I have a million dollar building and the, I can't depreciate land because land doesn't break down, right? It's there. It's going to be there. Um, but say the land is $200,000, but the remaining part of the building is um, property is $800,000, all the improvements on the property. And maybe I do a cost segregation analysis and I'm able to accelerate 400000 of that to the first five years of the project. Well, I can take that $400,000 loss evenly over five years. Okay. And then what the other $400,000, I can take that evenly over 27 and a half years. Okay. So that really helps me accelerate my losses forward, shelter the any income that I'm bringing in on that property. Now, those two things are baked into the tax code. They're accounting methodologies. But what we've been um, as real estate investors, you know, we've had the blessing of having what we call bonus depreciation for many years. It ramped up to 100% in 2017. It's ticking back down now. Um, you know, I think this year it's 80%. Next year it's going to 60%. That's a tax incentive, meaning if I do this cost segregation analysis and I have $400,000. I can now, I don't have to take it evenly over the first five years. I can now take 80% of that in year one. Yep. So it really helps me accelerate the velocity of my money because if I'm taking, because now all of that, all of those losses can be used against all the passive income I'm bringing in across my real estate. And so I'm really sheltering as much income as I possibly can, reducing my tax load um, so I can continue to reinvest and purchase more real estate. Yeah. And I think, I'm going to pause know, there because there's a few other things yeah. we can do here with real estate. Yeah. So, you, you, said, you know, the most important, I think, word you use there is paper, as in paper losses. This is not uh, an actual loss that you're incurring. It's a paper loss, which is beautiful because it can offset income. And the, the upshot of, of that, what, what Whitney just went through in, in great detail, and that was awesome, Whitney, is... These, these strategies, accelerated depreciation, bonus depreciation, it doesn't let you depreciate more, but it lets you depreciate it faster. 
And one of the things we learned early on, at least I did in my, my finance and accounting classes, is there's a time value of money. So paper losses are an awesome thing because they reduce your, your taxable income. And paper losses today, paper losses in year one, are better than paper losses 26 uh, years from now or 27 and a half years from now. So to the extent you're able to pull that forward, um, there's real value in that because you're going to reduce your, your taxable income today uh, and, and therefore reduce your taxes today. Um, yeah, that's that's a great summary of, of appreciation, Whitney. Yeah, the, these losses accrue. So, you know, even if you end up with the wealth of losses in, in year one, those losses will carry over. Now, it yep. requires you to have an amazing accountant, though, because I've seen um, so many um, CPAs do this incorrectly, unfortunately, and, and not track those losses going forward. And then they kind of go away in thin air. You as an investor do not want that happening. So make sure that you're working with somebody who knows how to book these losses correctly and continue carrying them forward. Yeah. Another option is, is with the accelerated depreciation, um, you don't have to do that cost segregation analysis in year one if you don't need the losses. You could plan for in future years, work with your accountant. Um, to to you can take those losses in future years. Now you got to go back and file a form, which is called a thirty one fifteen, in order to go backwards and adjust your previous returns. It can be a little bit of a pain, but it's not too terribly painful. Um, you know, my I always like taking it all in year one and booking the losses because you never know when the tax law is going to change. <laughs> so Point. that's my that's my yeah. pre preferred methodology. Now. Another beautiful thing about real estate, and quite frankly, owning businesses too, is you can do, this is a, a something the tax code gave us in 1921, which is the 1031 exchange. Now, the reason why it's called a 1031 exchange is because it's the actual number of the tax code, right? Kind of like a 401k, that's the actual number in the tax code. That's why it's called a 401k. But the 1031 exchange, um, this allows us to exchange um, you know, uh, it, it continued kind of like playing Monopoly. We can, you know, sell our real estate, okay? And take all that capital gains, um, avoid paying depreciation recapture and move it up. And as long as we buy, um, you know, a larger value of property, okay? You know, and it can be one property or multiple properties that are, you know, larger value. There's a lot of rules that you work with the 1031 intermediary here. Um, but it allows you to kind of play a little bit of uh, monopoly here. You know, uh, was it four houses, four greenhouses equals one red hotel, yeah, right? That's like, right. So continue trading up into larger property, but you don't, the tax bill gets, it, it, the can gets kicked down the road. It doesn't eliminate the tax bill. But the reason why somebody might want to consider this is because the, one of the mantras of rental real estate is buy, borrow, die. Okay, buy the real estate, borrow as much as you can against it to accelerate your cash flow and your velocity of money. Die with it in your possession because right now in the tax code, if you die with the rental real estate under your name, your heirs get a step up in basis. And essentially, if you've been performing 1031 exchanges for 20, 30 years on your property, um, they're, they're not going to pay any taxes. That tax bill essentially goes away, gets wiped out. Yeah, the, the best so time to pay taxes. The... <laughs> Sorry, Whitney, the best time to pay taxes, I, I always like to say, are, are later and never. And the 1031, uh, you definitely pay taxes later. You, as you mentioned, you sell a property. Instead of really selling it, you're actually exchanging it, in a sense. 
exchanging it into a, a bigger property, um, meaning you don't have to pay capital gains taxes at that time. You kick them down the road, you pay them later. Um, and then, as you mentioned, when you you pass away, hopefully after uh, a rich, long life and, and leave this to your heirs, there's a step up in basis um, and, and you can effectively uh, avoid paying taxes altogether on that. So um, yeah, pay, pay taxes at the worst, you pay it later. Um, and, you know, ideally you pay it, you pay it never uh, when you pass it on to a future generation. Yeah. And this requires you to have um, a bit of planning because I, I, I've seen, um, you know, it happened in my family as well. My, my grandfather, you know, unaware of, you know, the situation, you know, he gifted some land to, you know, other people in the family, there was a tax bill, right? Whereas if you just held on to the land into that property, there would have been a step up in basis and no tax bill. Right, so it really is a a, a a a wealth exchange that is available to anybody, um, yeah. and this can be done with real estate. It can be done with businesses. Um, but you know, like I said, this this law came into effect in 1921. Now the IRS got savvy because they saw people exchanging businesses for real estate, real estate for businesses, and they went time out. So in 1924, they put in the provision of like kind exchange, meaning you can exchange real estate for real estate, businesses for businesses. Um, but there is a really unique strategy because, you know, for people who are looking to get into passive investing, um, you know, most operators will tell them, hey, we can't 1030, allow you to 1031 into our syndicated investments, right? Because you're selling a piece of property. The syndicated in, uh, investment is technically a business that owns real estate. You actually can get around that with what we call a tenant in common relationship. So this is like real estate tax 301. But yeah, I just want to make sure I mention it because if there's anybody listening that is like, I'm selling a piece of property before the end of the year and I like what she's saying about kicking the can down the road, but I don't want to go buy that next property, you know, reach out to us and we'd be happy to, you know, help inform you about the tenant in common relationship that might help you solve that problem. But these right. are all things that are available before you have to get into all of these like cool tricks and hacks like opportunity zones and Delaware statutory trust or deferred sales trust. These are, you know, lazy 1031 exchanges. These are all available to everybody without getting into those like unique tax maneuvers. Yeah, I, I like the way you mentioned it, Whitney. The the tax code is a treasure map. I wrote that down. I'm going to steal it, by the way. Um, because I think that's that's a great way to um, to phrase it. A lot of people, when they start talking about ways to avoid taxes, they kind of clam up and feel like, oh no, I'm doing something wrong. I'm going to get in trouble. But you know, I like the way that that you said it. And you mentioned incentives. Not only is this all above board, it's actually what the government wants you to do. That's why they created this incentive because they're trying to incentivize behavior. Um, so I think that's a mental block that a lot of people have that this any anytime you're talking about reducing your taxes, you're gonna uh, end up with with a huge penalty or end up in jail or something. And and you know, if you do things right, uh you're not only doing what's completely above board, you're actually doing what they want you to do. So you're taking advantage of of incentives, which are there to incentivize behavior. So, anyways, I I, I like the way that you phrase that. If I could stack on that, let's say, let's paint this picture because it really took me, you know, a couple years of being, you know, just owning rental real estate to understand. I actually paid more in taxes, but I paid them through my business entities. Mm. So I, by owning all this rental real estate, I was paying, you know, um, you know, uh, sometimes like, you know, LLC transactional taxes. I was paying, um, you know, property taxes. 
if I had a property manager, you know, baked into that property management fee was probably some payroll taxes. So I'm still positively impacting the community by paying the property taxes in these locales by, you know, employing people um, to help manage the property. You know, there's taxes related to materials and vendors and all that. So it's not that I get away completely scot-free from paying taxes as an investor. It's just that it's all now part of the entity that the the real estate or that's or the the you know goes through the LLC that owns the real estate. I don't have to pay that personally now. So I've shifted how I pay taxes. Great, great summary there, Whitney. Um, totally agreed. Um, the, the last thing I want to dive a little bit deeper on here that you mentioned that I think will be of interest uh, to folks is you talk a little bit about entities and you mentioned a couple specifically. You mentioned that in some cases, an S-Corp might make sense. In some cases, an LLC might make sense. I'm going to ask you to dive a little bit deeper on there because I think you, you kind of touched on a couple of really important topics that, that maybe not everyone is aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, it depends on how the income of the LLC is being treated. And so this is, again, something that you want to partner with, with your legal team, with your CPA team. I'm not an accountant, but they're going to help guide you through looking at what kind of income is being earned. Is it active through, like, say, fix and flipping? Um, or is it passive through, like, buy and hold, um, you know, income, like your rental income? Um, they'll give you guidance on, like, the type of entity to form. And then they'll also give you guidance on like, do you make that election and make it an S corp? Now, some of the advantages here, you know, for buy and hold real estate, rental real estate, you know, that's all flowing through that LLC. And if, if you do it properly, you know, I, I would imagine your legal team is just saying, hey, let it flow through the LLC. You're getting the, the protection here of the LLC. Um, but, you know, your accountant is just going to allow it to flow on to your Schedule E on your taxes. Whereas if you check the S Corp box, now you are, um, you know, you're telling the IRS, hey, this is active income. And part of it, I'm going to pay myself a salary. And the other part of it is going to be a distribution. And those two, the way you take those monies are going to be taxed differently. But so that's why um, you want to make sure you partner with your accountant and your legal team to make sure you're setting the structure up properly based on what kind of assets the LLC is going to hold and the income they're bringing in. Here's the number one mistake I see that I see investors go and try to, you know, open up their LLC on the state websites or use um, like, you know, inkfile.com or some sort of corporation, entity corporation, and they stuff all of their flips and their rentals in the same LLC trying to save yeah. money. And the thing is now you've got, you've mixed active income and passive income. So you can't really optimize it tax. You know, for, you know, from a tax standpoint, but also you're now creating, you know, bringing in some legal exposure by mixing those two types of, you know, you know, properties in the same LLC. Yeah, uh, great point there. Um, LLC, um, limited liability, that's what it stands for, but um, only if you do it correctly um, or, or it can be done, I guess it can be done. You know, I was, uh, there's a saying that uh, anything that's worth doing is uh, is worth doing well. Um, and I think that, you know, that certainly applies here. If you're going to take advantage of the LLC structure, do it right and do it well. Uh, to Whitney's point, don't make that mistake. Um, Whitney, this has been phenomenal. You've, you've really walked us through a lot of the, the tax advantage components of real estate. 
Uh, last question though, before I let you go, I hear that you're that you're writing a book. Tell us a little bit about that, and then I want to know where folks can go to find out more about you. Yeah, I'm actually uh, have a book being published with Bigger Pockets. If people are familiar with that, uh, it'll come out here in February on the Bigger Pockets website, and it's called Money for Tomorrow: A Sensible Guide to Building Wealth. And um, you know, we talk about you know in you know the tax code so many people are so focused on not paying taxes but that is really like one little sliver on how to actually build your financial wealth foundation and become what i like to say an unstoppable investor so um you know uh just a quick little snippet um if multi-generational wealth were a game you need to understand the objective of the game right like i don't know if anybody's ever tried to play contain or anything like that you know or even monopoly, right? You have to understand the objective. What is it we're trying to do? What are the rules of the game? And then just because you know the objective and rules doesn't make you a good player, right? You have to understand the over the strategy, the principles, okay, that that help you become the best player possible. And that's what this book is designed to do is help you win the four levels of building wealth, which is learning how to create it, keep it, grow it, which is where so many people focus, but it's really a small slice of the pie. And then how to pass it on efficiently. Yeah, uh, I love that. Those four levels, that, that's well put. Uh, I can't wait to, to, to read that book, Whitney. We'll be sure to have you on uh, back on uh, around the time that comes out. You can tell folks a little bit more about it. In the meantime, though, if they want to learn more about you, they want to get in touch with you, where can they go to find you? If you're interested in learning about passive investing and you know uh, you know diving into passive investing opportunities and multifamily self storage express car washes and real estate debt, you can reach out to me at passiveinvestingwithwhitney.com. Um, there, I've got some free goodies. You can get access to my calendar there. Um, and if you're somebody who's like, wow, I just need one-on-one -on -one help on building my game plan here, winning this multi-generational wealth game you can reach out to me at ashwealth.com, A-S-H-wealth.com. Okay, fantastic. And we'll put both of those in the show notes so folks will have no problem tracking them down and getting in touch with you. Whitney, this has been fantastic. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. This has been wonderful. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.